Hi there, I'm Dan Jones. Welcome to the podcast. I'm an oceanographer working at the British Antarctic Survey in Cambridge, UK. And on this podcast, I have long informal conversations with people whose work intersects with climate in some way. I hope you're doing okay. I hope you're able to take care of yourself and take care of your loved ones. I uh, want to own up and acknowledge that I'm really privileged because uh, I'm here with my family, with my wife and kid. We're all doing the lockdown life, the quarantine thing together. So I'm very fortunate to be to be with them. The uh, the whole online schooling thing, really, we're not making much progress with that. That's uh, that's a challenge. That's, that's that's a big challenge, and it's helped me appreciate something that I I did know before, but it's really hammered in for me this idea that educators are are amazing. They especially the particular educators that work with my son at his school, they're uh, so good. And they're just exactly the right kind of set of people for him and for his particular needs. But they are they are way better at educating young kids than, than I'll ever be. That's a very particular skill set. And it's a really special skill set. Uh, I can teach university courses all right. And I could probably f- uh, get my way through high school okay, maybe. I'm not sure. I haven't had a chance to try that. But uh, teaching really young kids, primary school, elementary school age kids, uh, no way. I don't have that skill set. That's You just need to, I don't know what it is exactly. I can't put my finger on what it is, but it's something about the environment that you're able to create. Anyway, so yeah, we've got two working parents here at the house and one kid in, in school, one kid in primary school. And uh, it's okay. We're muddling our way through, but I'm certainly not very productive right now. My, um, you know, I'll, I'll let my wife speak for her for herself, but uh, I'm not very productive right now, and the online school staff is certainly a challenge. So I don't know. I hope you can be kind to yourself, and I hope you. I mean, people are in lots of different situations, so I don't want to overgeneralize. I know some people have to keep working. I know some people have deadlines and uncertainties that they have to work with. But regardless of what you're facing, I hope you can be kind to yourself. And I hope that doesn't sound preachy or, or weird coming from me. Uh, I don't know. I, I just hope that everybody is doing okay and is able to look out for their own mental health and their own physical health and to keep themselves grounded and, and okay. Okay, so yeah, let's talk about the episode. A few weeks ago, I mentioned this on the last episode, but a few weeks ago I put out a general Twitter call to see if anybody wanted to give this online podcasting thing a try over one of the various video conferencing apps that are available. And a few people reached out. A few people said, raised their hands and said, yeah, let's do it. Let's give this a try. And one of those people, one of those brave volunteers is a, she's a PhD student in Antarctic climate, what you can learn about Antarctic climate from ice cores working at the University of Cambridge in the earth science department. Her name is Bella Rowell. She's associated with Darwin College, which is one of the colleges in the University of Cambridge. And she also has supervisors, people that she works with at the British Antarctic Survey, where I work. She recently got back, before this conversation, she recently got back from some Antarctic field work, and we spent a good amount of the time discussing that field work. The field work was part of this broader uh, Waxwain project, and I've got the Waxwain website pulled up here. I'm going to read to you. I'm going to tell you a little bit about this. So the Waxwain, the acronym 
includes the letters. Uh, it include it. It comes from the. It's an acronym that comes from the phrase, "the warm climate stability of West Antarctic ice sheet," in the last interglacial project. Well, the project isn't part of the acronym, and I'm just reading this from the university website. You can look this up yourself too, of course, obviously. So this project is led by Cambridge Earth Sciences professor Eric Wolf, and Eric Wolf. He actually did this podcast before. We've recorded a conversation. You can go back in the archives, so to speak, or go back to the look through the previous episodes to find his conversation. And if I remember right, it's been a, a while since we recorded that, but if I remember right, we talked about the process that he went through to get Waxwane funded and what some of the initial plans were. So this is kind of, this is a nice update. This is a little update on what has been going on with Waxwane. And it's also a bit of an in-depth dive into a particular bit of field work, which was part of this project. So I'll read you, I'll read to you a little bit more from the website. So it's led by Eric Wolf and it aims, this project aims to understand what happened to the West Antarctic ice sheet during the last interglacial period between 115,000 and 130,000 years ago. So recent modeling studies predict that anthropogenic warming, that is warming that is the result of human emissions of greenhouse gases, could lead to the loss of the West Antarctic ice sheet in the next few centuries and cause a large rise in sea level. This new project, Waxwane, aims to discover whether the West Antarctic ice sheet was destroyed by similar warming in the last interglacial, as both modeling and indirect evidence suggest. It's a five-year European Research Council-funded project, an ERC project, and those are not easy to get, so hats off to Eric for getting securing one of those. That's a, a big accomplishment, and it uh, sounds like it is very active, and it's heading in an interesting direction. So for Bella... Again, thanks to Bella for volunteering to appear on the con on the podcast to have a conversation with me. You can find her on Twitter, at Bella Rowell, just her name, as you see it spelled here on the podcast. And she says that she likes cold places and all things climate on her Twitter bio there. I'm uh, at Dan Jones Ocean on Twitter, and if you want updates about the podcast, at Climate SciPod, that's another place you can follow for updates about the podcast, and we'll uh, we'll get into it really soon. In fact, let's just go ahead and get into it right now. So, here is my conversation with Bella Rowell, PhD student at the University of Cambridge. Here we go. For doing this, thanks for helping me give this uh, remote podcast thing a, a try here. Yeah, no problem. Uh, it's, it's, it's a good idea to reach out, I think, and try and do these things when you can, even when the situation isn't, you know, necessarily as easy as it might otherwise be. That's right. Yeah, I, I often start out by asking how people's day has been or their week, <laughs> and so that's a that seems like a particularly rich thing to talk about right now. Like, so how it how was the first week of kind of were you isolating some last week or previously as well? Yeah, or? so I've been working from home since last Tuesday when it kind of became pretty obvious that we were that, that was the way things were going. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's not been too bad. I managed to take some of my equipment from my office at the department in Cambridge and set up in a reasonable home office sort of situation mm -hmm. here. 
but um, it's sort of shared with my partner who's now at home as well, obviously, where everybody's working from home now. So it's got its own challenges, but it's going okay. Get some of the ice cores in your freezer so you can, you know, cut little chunks <laughs> out and, and melt them and yeah, exactly. analyze them with your, your kitchen spectrometer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that I just have. have lying around, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're doing your ice core work from home. <laughs> yeah, but it, it's so we've gone into yeah full full UK lockdown where you're not really supposed to leave your house unless you're going for groceries or medicine or I mean if you work in an essential job uh, or if uh, or you can go out for exercise but you're only supposed to do that once I think is the yeah is the once idea. once a day leaving the house for exercise or essential activities yeah it's crazy. This is the first time in my life I've ever had anything like this. This is really bizarre. This is like a surreal sort of situation for me. And yeah, so I mean, everyone keeps saying it, but it does feel like a film or something. It just doesn't feel like it's it's real life. It doesn't. I don't think it's really sunk in yet either that we don't necessarily know how long this might this might last. So it's yeah, it's definitely an yeah. interesting time. A friend of mine said it's like a young adult fiction novel, just like. <laughs> Only in that young adult fiction novel, the virus should be much, much worse. I mean, it's obviously very serious and we're trying mm. to curb it. But like, I think, you know, in a, in a young adult fiction novel, I guess the virus would, the, the drama would be, would be amped up even more. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad it's, you know, it's, but it, it is crazy. And I, I mentioned this kind of in, on the podcast before already, but it kind of, it's been fascinating. I mean, yes, it's scary. And I certainly have had my moments of like, oh my gosh, this is, this is a bit overwhelming and a lot, but um, it's really been interesting to see this large scale coordinated activity with like the whole, you know, countries all over the the world, basically like, you know, pretty much all of human civilization taking note of this and doing something about it and, you know, acting in a particular way. And that's, that's never happened before in my lifetime, certainly. And it's a, uh, I don't know. It's just striking. Yeah, you're right. It's, um, I didn't, I don't, as far as I'm aware, I mean, there's not a country that hasn't been in some way affected by it. And it's, it is amazing to see this kind of global action. Um, and they, like you say, this kind of organization of everyone putting in the same systems. I just, this morning, I guess you probably got the same thing, but the, U, I got a text from the UK government. I'm like, I didn't even know the government could send out texts to the, to the people in the country. So no. what was it? Yeah, I got the same thing. I got, um, it was specifically, yeah, UK Gov. So they have my yeah. phone number. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> or they're able to just broadcast it to all UK numbers. I don't know what the, if, if the there's the difference. I don't know what yeah. the difference is, but I had no yeah. idea they could do that. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 his kind of wild. Um, but I don't know if you're. I mean, we're we're all talking about this a lot. We're all talking about the virus situation and the response, yeah. just because it is a such a, a bizarre time in our lives, but. Um, I don't know if you're feeling talked out about it or if you feel like you're, <laughs> you've talked enough about it with, with various people, but uh, I, I guess it's going to remain a topic of conversation for a long time. We're going to have to adjust what we're doing for uh, months, maybe. Yeah. Potentially. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like it's going to be months. I mean, there's not a huge amount I know about the virus or anything like that, but yeah, obviously it's definitely dominating conversation and that, and that, like you say, it's the first time in, in my life I've ever experienced anything like this. So yeah. I think it's natural that people are going to talk about it a lot. Yeah. And I like that. So on science Twitter, I like that people have been pretty positive about saying you know, nobody's going to be productive. Don't be too hard yeah. on yourself. Be understanding. Um, I think a lot of people's employers like the med office. And I've got to say like my employer have been 
really clear on that messaging of like, we get it. We're not going to be expecting you to, you know, be producing a lot of stuff right now. We're going to do everything we can to, to make this easy for you. N not easy, but we're going to do everything we can to, um, to accommodate, you know, like your, what, what you need to do during this bizarre period. I know not everybody's that lucky. Uh, I know that you know, some, some people are losing their jobs and some people are being put in pretty rough situations. Um, and I don't know what the, I mean, if you don't mind me asking with the PhD thing, are, are they being pretty clear about like, well, this is going to, we're going to allow your timelines to be adjusted and we're going to figure that out. Um, yeah, they've, they been, they've been, yeah, they've been very supportive. So I work at the University of Cambridge where I'm a PhD student in the Department of Ad Sciences and um, they've been incredibly supportive. They've tried to keep us as up to date on everything as possible. Um, they've made it very clear that we should, um, if particularly if we live in a college in Cambridge, that we should leave, um, get home, you know, as soon, as soon as possible, particularly now with the sort of travel lockdown going on. But yeah, they've been very supportive in terms of um, what they expect of us during this time. Um, particularly, so obviously there's a lot of people who have very much lab-based work, um, myself included, but luckily I'm able to, there's plenty of work that I can get on with that isn't lab-based. Um, so yeah, they've basically said that if we, if there's nothing that we can be doing, then we can sort of apply to kind of take an uh, sort of intermit, I guess, to sort of like pull out of the PhD for the time being, if, the, if there's nothing that we can be going, be, be doing from home and they're obviously very understanding that during this time our our productivity might kind of drop off which I mean it definitely has done a little bit for me um but that yeah if that does have an effect on our our work and our deadlines particularly if it comes to like the thesis deadline that that could be extended if necessary so there seems to be a lot of support out there and a lot there's, they're definitely pushing the message that you know don't worry in terms of like handing your thesis in or something like that there, there's room for sort of uh, there's wiggle room there so that's, that's been, great it's been a relief to hear yeah i put this general call out because i thought now would be a good time to you know try out some more online conversations uh although we are literally in the same county right now i think right? yeah. so <laughs> that's fine that's fine so we we could actually at some point do an in-person one but you know this is how things are right now yeah <laughs> uh, yeah i'm glad i'm glad you reached out you mentioned that um do we want to talk about the field work that you just got back from? So you got back from the, the Wax Wayne project field work, yeah. which, uh, yeah, we've had, we've had Eric Wolf on the podcast before, but it's been a while ago. It's been a couple of years, I guess. Uh, well, no, I've been doing it two years. So maybe like one, one year and a bit, I think. And uh -huh. uh, so, yeah, it'd be interesting to hear like a really up to date take on, you know, here is some very recent field work that's gone on in Antarctica. Be, yeah, well, so um, I guess the it probably helps to give a background to the Waxwing project as a whole first. Um, so Waxwing stands for something along the lines of uh, warm climate stability of the West Antarctic ice sheet uh, during the last interglacial. That's not as catchy as Waxwing, so uh, that's what we tend to call it. But basically, it's the a project looking to look at whether or not the ice sheet, the West Antarctic ice sheet, collapsed during the last interglacial period, so a period. Uh, roughly 130,000 years ago, uh, when global temperatures peaked a little bit warmer than they were today. Um, and so to sort of use that as kind of a, an analog for what might happen in the future, although that's not strictly true. Um, um, and so the, that involves, the project has involved two field campaigns, one um, both in the Western Antarctic Ice Sheet to drill new ice core sites, 
um, as a way of looking at directly at um, the, the last interglacial time period and analysing what those sites looked at during uh, looked like during the, uh, that time. So yeah, I just got back from the second of the two field campaigns from Waxwing, which was to a place called Sherman Island, which is sort of located kind of near the Pine Island Thwaites region of Western Antarctica, um, which obviously is a is a a site of interest for other reasons as well. Um, that's on the that's on the Pacific side of Antarctica. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so um, in the Pacific Ocean. Yeah, if you sailed due north, you'd be in the Pacific Ocean, basically, from that location. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the aim of this project at Sherman Island was to use the what's called the RAID drill. So that stands for the Rapid Access Isotope Drill, uh, which instead of drilling a true ice core, drills ice chippings. So it has a couple of downsides in that you can't look at, say, the gas record, which ice cores are often quite famous for providing this nice record of past greenhouse gases. So unfortunately you can't get that using the RAID drill, but what you can get is um, you can drill very quickly and um, in just a few days, you can be drilling sort of hundreds of meters, which um, you, you could never achieve with traditional methods. So it allowed us to get into the site to drill uh, three, over 300 meters and then get out of the site all within two weeks. And so get in, set up camp, do the work and decamp and have everything cleared out and cleaned up again within two weeks, which is much, much quicker than you'd ever have with another with a traditional deep drilling project. Um, we did have some problems on the <laughs> one major problem on the uh, field campaign, which I'll get to in a minute. But yeah, yeah. yeah I, wanted, I wanted to ask about the, the ice chippings a little bit more. So yeah. you mentioned that so this is a faster way to get old ice, ice that has some trapped gas from you know, past climates contained in it. Yeah. And you said that you can't get the, the gas record you can't you can't do that reconstruction mm -hmm. using the the ice chippings so but I guess there must be some air trapped in the in the ice yeah ice you're right there. they you can um, so you do get the, the ice chippings um, which are sort of more like m more like snow so it's literally like the ice is drilled but it's broken up as it comes up in the drill right. okay. um, so you couldn't get um, an uncontaminated gas record if you like so it's going to be it's going to be mixed with current air and air from um sort of a region either side of the of the partic any particular depth in the ice sheet so um, okay. yeah it's not really a usable gas record yeah so is the point then to you're not trying to make a time series i guess but you're trying to get down to a specific depth so what tell me a little bit more about what you do get what did you do get out of it yeah, so the reason it's called the rapid access isotope drill is that you can use the ice chippings to get an isotope record. And that's still a reasonably continuous record through the ice sheet. So if you imagine down through the ice sheet going back in time, you would still get a continuous record, but it's not going to be as um, sort of perfect as a traditional ice core would be, uh, because there is some mixing of the ice chippings as they come up through the drill barrel. Right, okay. And um, it's and because we're sampling at discrete um depths rather than measuring continuously like you could with um with a real isotope but it does give us that isotope record so what we're looking at is the the isotopes the water uh, stable water isotopes in the ice the ice itself so we melt down the ice and measure the um isotope ratio of the water molecules so that gives us um an indication of past temperature so we will get essentially a temperature record going back through time at that site is that coming from the oxygen is the isotope part yeah. from the oxygen 
Yeah, you can look at the oxygen and also the deuterium as well. Okay. And you said that gives you a past measure of temperature because we have some understanding of a proxy relationship between how oxygen turn how oxygen turns into or is expressed in different isotopes and temperature, kind of mean temperature. Yeah, so that would give us, I mean, on the timescales we're looking at, that would give us an indication of sort of mean temperature, um, I mean, le on less than an annual scale, uh, certainly. I guess over Antarctica, gent broadly, right, the mean temperature, yes. kind of, cause, so it, it could potentially be different in different parts of the planet, and you would expect it to be, I guess, um, reasonably, it could, it could be different in a different part of the planet, I guess is all I'm saying, but it's... Yeah. Um, Okay, so that, yeah, I, I get what you're saying now, that you wouldn't necessarily use this data to make a time series, but you are getting discrete samples that you could use to, to you know, um, that you could use to figure out what the past temperature range might have been. And are you using, so you're using that information to try to figure out something about how vulnerable the ice sheet is to collapse and mm -hmm. disintegration? So yeah, ideally what we would what would have happened is that we would have drilled to bedrock at Sherman Island and then we'd have been able to use the isotope record, the stabilized water isotope record, um, and um, that would help us to um, estimate the age of the site of the sort of ice at the bedrock at Sherman Island, which would give us an indication of the of, you know whether that site existed during the last interglacial period. So in terms of the wax swinging goals, that would um, satisfy that kind of, uh, that goal of, you know, was there ice initially, was there ice at this spot? And also we could then um, start to answer some of the questions about the region and the climate of that region um, during that time. I'm also looking more broadly um, at sort of Antarctic climate as a whole. So um, sort of goes a little bit further away from the wax swing goals, but sort of aim of my PhD is to try and look at, uh, the last glacial cycle of climate around Antarctica using stable water isotope records um, and pick about how that changed spatially during around Antarctica during that time. So as you were right to mention that uh, the water isotope record can give us different, um, you know, we can get a different temperature in one place versus another place in Antarctica. So yeah, I'm looking at how that regional climate varies. Okay, that's, that's cool. Yeah, so I guess one of the things that I like to say about paleoclimate is that it is not for the faint of heart. You know, you, you can't be scared. This is not an insult, by the way. This is like, no. you know, you, you can't be scared of big error bars because that's just <laughs> your, your reality. Like it's just, <laughs> you're trying to constrain something that happened a long time ago you know, using fairly limited data. I mean, it's, it, it's amazing what you can get and it's amazing what you, you know, that you can get old air and you can get old isotope ratios. It's fantastic. Um, but it, it is compared to say, you know, what whether people are working with or what you know modern atmospheric researchers are working with. It's a small data set, so what um, I'm kind of curious. I always like to ask paleo people a little bit more about the theoretical side of their field as well. Like, so how do you make the best use of that little bit of data that you have? And what's what's the that's that's a that's too broad of a question. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, for, no, for your project, maybe specifically, how do you want to make the best use of that of that data? Yeah, that's a really good question. Actually, a lot of my work is focused on yeah, how best can we use this data, and actually, what are the limits of this data? How, mm -hmm. how 
accurate can we be in saying, oh, this was the temperature in the year, whatever, before 2000, you know, that there is, we do have to be realistic about what we can actually say these, these proxies can tell us. Um, so um, there's another sort of project that I'm working on, which is looking at two deep drilling sites out near Dome C. So you might know Dome C is this um, ice core site that was, the, which is the longest ice core that we have in time. So it goes back 800,000 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's actually another um, core that was, well, there's another couple of cores that were drilled nearby um, as part of investigating um, where we might find even older ice. But what that means is that there's now a, couple, a sort of small network of cores out there which are, go back quite a long time. So they go back about 20,000 years, or well, a, a minimum 20,000 years. Um, and we can sort of therefore investigate the long term, um, sorry, we can sort of investigate um, the limits of sort of looking at isotopes in quite in a, on a regional level and what they can actually tell us spatially, but also um, in terms of how, what timescales we can expect to look at these isotope records in. Um, but yeah, you're right to say that uh, we have to be comfortable with error bars. But, um, but I actually find it kind of liberating in a way, because I mean, if you think about it, we're investigating things that we can never know for certain. So in a way, we're just trying to build on what we don't know. <laughs> yeah. And kind of, there is no, I mean, there is a, a right answer, I guess, but we can only try and get closer and closer to that right answer. So in a way, it's kind of, it's kind of freeing. <laughs> yeah, I guess one's level of psychological comfort with the size of the error bar might determine, you know, on what timescales you should work on. You know, yeah. if you, if you want to know something you know, to several decimal places. Yeah, don't do paleo. Do like really modern, you know, <laughs> really modern weather to where you can take direct measurements of these things. Um, yeah. And uh, if you're comfortable with just knowing the kind of order of magnitude and maybe a factor or two, then then you might be able to hack it in paleo possibly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's not uh, an analogy. Yeah, I've seen people try to do like data assimilation with paleo data mm-hmm. before. And it's pretty fascinating because you can do some things, you know, you, it, there is enough data to provide at least some weak constraints in the data assimilation framework. And you can learn things from, from that because that gives you a way to combine the data that you, the, the relatively limited data that you have with a model that represents things like conservation of momentum and conservation of energy in some, some way. Um, yeah. So that's, that's, that's always impressive to me. So the, uh, I did write down, you mentioned there's a problem with your field work and I, I wrote down, wrote that down because I'm like, we, we're not going to miss that. I want to talk about that. So <laughs> what went wrong? What was uh, the problem? Well, so in short, we uh, didn't drill to bedrock like we planned. So that was because we lost the drill. Uh, lost the drill. Yeah, we lost the drill. Oh. So the ice sheet um, in that at Sherman Island is about 430 meters thick at, at the drilling site where we were drilling. Um, and unfortunately, we lost the drill at 323 meters. Um, so when you say lost it, what does that mean? How does is it? So stuck? is it just? Stuck? It means oh yeah. In terms of it got stuck. Well, we don't really know the reason why it got stuck. Unfortunately, mm. um, there was no indication that that was going to happen. Um, so the drill went down into the borehole as normal, um, and then when it got to the bottom. Uh, Rob Mulvaney, who is who is very experienced uh, ice core driller, just raised the drill slightly before he started the rotation of the drill, so that it would start um, sort of in open space, not drilling straight into the ice. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point, it it wouldn't it wouldn't raise, so it Ooh. just stuck. Uh, we don't 
fully know why. Um, and yeah, we, we made some attempts to, to try and free it, but um, you know, when it's 320 meters below you, there's not exactly a lot you can do to free it. So it oh. project over very abruptly and very suddenly. So did you have a lot more planned after that? What did you do? How did you adjust your, your science plan? <laughs> well, uh, that's still kind of an ongoing question, but, okay. Oh, okay. but mainly we will be able to more accurately predict the age of the bottom. So we have, um, 320 meters of isotope of water sample, uh, ice samples that we can. Yeah. Cause um, you still got those chips up like those tip, those chips, the those ice chips still came up to where you could collect them. Yeah. Yeah. So we drill about a meter and a half at a time and bring it up um, in sort of stages. So yeah, we, we, this was a few days into the drilling itself when it actually got stuck. So we already have plenty of ice to analyze. Um, the downside being that because of the way the ice uh, thins during the ice sheet means that um, it won't go back as far as we think. So although we got say three, three quarters of the way in terms of depth, doesn't mean that we got three quarters of the way in terms of the age of the ice. So um, mm. a lot of the sort of age of the ice is, is still left there in the ice sheet that we we won't be able to access i'll ask us oh sorry um sorry <laughs> can i ask a silly question before you, yeah. you go on so the silly question i think i know the answer but i'd like to hear you mm. talk about it um wh why not just drill another hole next to that one you know that's that's a silly question but <laughs> it's not a silly question i mean it was actually an option and it was yeah. something that we briefly considered um mainly sort of time commitments mm. and you get in and out of the field in quite a short space of time uh, we also toyed with the idea of possibly coming back next year and drilling again and um, sort of depoting a lot of the equipment there at the site and coming back next year but um that was kind of ruled out mainly on the basis that um during uh sort of for my phd purposes that that was going to take a lot of time a lot of energy and a lot of work that would then not be going into the rest of my work so uh, it takes a lot of planning and a lot of effort to go into a field campaign. So that was kind of ruled out for that reason. Um, but yeah, we, I mean, I guess in theory, yeah, we could have started again and just drilled again. But uh, the biggest reason for that is that we didn't have another drill. So it would have been an option to come back next year, but not at, not at the time. Yeah, hard if you don't have a backup one or, you yeah. know, there's not, not a whole lot you can do we um I, I was lucky enough to be on a cruise with rob mulvaney a few years ago a research cruise and so he brought along this hand operated ice corer that we had we used in a couple of places just to get a couple of meters um well maybe like a meter of ice you know here yeah. and there from from sea ice and from a glacier and and i was really struck by you know i, I how hard it was uh pretty quickly you know, like yeah. it, 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 you sort of might think that if you have an ice core, you'll be able to get through the top, you know, a couple tens of centimeters without too much trouble. But no, it was it was challenging right away. So yeah, I can't. It's hard to imagine hundreds of meters of ice. Um, but that's that's why it's going to be powered. That's why it's going to be mechanical. Yeah, but, it wasn't uh, wasn't human power doing that by any means. <laughs> no, but even with human, you know, even with mechanical power, it's still it's got to be a lot of a lot of torque going into mm -hmm. that. So you have to take all that yeah. capacity with you. You have to take the ability to generate that much torque along with you. And yeah. uh, is that just a, a motor of some kind, basically? Is it, we have two yeah. generators, yeah. yeah. And then the actual uh, torque and everything is actually contained in the drill barrel. So it goes down on a, on a cable, which has um, 
which has like the power supply to the drill. But yeah, everything in terms of how the drill works is actually contained inside the drill barrel, at least as far as I'm aware, but I'm uh, by no means a drilling expert. So. <laughs> like a gas- gasoline power generator, you have to take the fuel for it as well, yeah? Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Yeah, so it's one of these slightly awkward issues as well, where obviously we're kind of locally causing some pollution to this kind of pristine environment, which obviously uh, we're meant to protect. But um, I think in the in the long run, it kind of balances out that we're doing work that will help to answer a lot of really important questions about the climate. So that kind of is balanced out in that regard. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. And <laughs> it's I don't know what the capacity is for you know could that be replaced with a solar or does that even make sense or is, does that sort of thing even exist at the moment? I don't I don't know. You you might know yeah. more than I do. I mean, I, I, I don't really, I, um, as far as I'm aware, I think to generate the power that we need, it's not viable yet, but I'd like to think that in the future that that could be an option, yeah. Yeah, hopefully so. Hopefully more power capacity and better battery capacity would be pretty great as well. Yeah. Okay. The thing I should say is about the uh, drill getting stuck. Um, we knew that there was um with there was sort of a margin of error of how the ice flows in this region of um of antarctica so uh, we, this is another reason that we um were using the rapid drill well actually no that's not quite right so the um the one of the downsides of the rapid drill is that it's um a dry drill so what you would get with a traditional drilling method uh, drilling technology is that as you take ice out of the ice sheet you replace it with um fluid Yes. like a drilling fluid um, and that stops uh, the borehole from closing while you're drilling but um, with the raid drill we can't do that so we just drill into a dry borehole and don't replace the ice that we take with anything um, and that means that the ice is still flowing um, at, that, at that site so while yeah. we drill, uh, we have to be aware that that borehole closure is going on and this is possibly one of the reasons that the drill got stuck we don't think that that's the case because the model that we had indicated that that would be a problem, uh, that the, the ice would not be flowing um, quick enough for that to be a problem at that depth. Hmm. But, but we don't we don't know for sure. Uh, I guess that's just a simulation, so we, that could be one of the reasons. Um, it was actually, we knew that once we got to 350 metres depth, that that would become more of a risk. And at that point, we were going to start to drill continuously, so drill 24-7 until we, were, until we reached the bedrock. But um, we never got to that point, so... Hmm enormous pressures down there just huge huge pressures crushing in so that that drill is really gone you know there's not there's some uh future archaeologists can find it and uh maybe and learn learn about the way that people studied antarctica you know in the 2000s i know it's kind of a a legacy of sorts (laughs) Hmm. Yeah, maybe it'll end up in a, a museum in the year 10,000 or something. <laughs> it'll be, <laughs> yeah. Okay, yeah. So that's, that's you're, you're in your PhD program. And I guess one of the things that was a little surprising for me to hear is that, so you're, some of your PhD is going to be built on the results of that field work, right? And the, the reason that I say that's surprising is I have heard a lot of uh, discussion about how well these these days PhD projects shouldn't be built on field work because it's too risky, and but it seems like in your case that that decision was made to like well let's let's go ahead and and have it ba- based on that. I'm not really weighing in on that. I'm just saying oh that's that's interesting. That's surprising. Um, so I I guess was there a, a backup? There must have been a backup plan, right? Like if 
if the fieldwork stuff just hadn't panned out, I imagine there must have been a um, an, an idea of okay, well, if that doesn't work out, we'll we'll go this way, um, and uh, you know, it's it, it's you you don't have to go into it if you don't want to. <laughs> I'm just just kind of you know in, interested in that as a possible. Oh, there, there was another thread of research, I guess, I'm imagining. Yeah, yeah, there is. So um, actually, the Sherman Island record that we did get, even if it had gone completely successfully, was only going to be one small part of my work. Um, so because I'm looking at sort of comparing this um, spatial variability of climate around Antarctica, I'm actually bringing in a lot of other existing ice core records. Nice. So, um, I'm using data from all, um, a, quite a large number of deep drilling projects um, data. So from all of East Antarctica and West Antarctica. Um, so the fact that the Sherman project didn't go as well as we'd have liked is obviously disappointing. Um, you know, it would have been great to have drilled to bedrock at this new site, um, which, which is a pretty unique site in terms of ice coring as well. Um, but it's not, it's, it wasn't a, it's not completely crucial. It doesn't mean that my thesis is completely collapsed around it. Um, by any means. So I've still got a lot of interesting work to do. Um, and I'm still working with a lot of data from other places. Yeah, that sounds smart. And I, I, <laughs> yeah, no, that, that sounds smart. And I'm, I'm not surprised. I just, um, that the PhD project yours is broader than, you know, just the results of that specific yeah. field work so that it's fine. If you have that data, it's fine. If you don't have that data, it, it does change the direction you go in, but, Yes, you know, it can, can shape it. So the, yeah, so the um, what uh, I'm trying to think of, I'm not doing a good job of finding a clean segue here, but I kind of thought we could talk about your, uh, unless there's another bit of the field work you wanted to talk about or another bit of the science you wanted to talk about. Let me just, I want to give you that opportunity if there's another piece, because I thought we could also kind of talk about your pathway, you know, into mm. into science and your PhD program. Yeah, sure. I mean, I have a slightly unusual background, I guess, for the field that I'm in now. But yeah, I don't think there's anything else I wanted to talk about in terms of the, the field campaign. But yeah, just to say that, like, it's uh, it's not completely uh, unheard of that especially Antarctic fieldwork doesn't go completely to plan. Um, so, yeah, we were always kind mm -hmm. of for that as a possibility. And I think any any scientist going into the field in Antarctica has to be realistically prepared for things like that going wrong. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Contingency plans yeah. and backup, backup plans. So yeah, tell me a little bit about so where, where did you grow up? Maybe that's a good place to start. Mm, so I'm, I'm from the UK. I'm from the Northeast um, in North Yorkshire. And I went to, I did my undergraduate in Manchester. So I'm a bit of a unusual one in that my undergrad was completely unrelated to what I'm doing now. So uh, I actually did a biomedical science degree um oh, wow. and yeah <laughs> and then basically decided on kind of a career switch so during that time um was when I was sort of becoming more and more aware of climate change as just a topic in the news really at that time um and was kind of becoming a lot more concerned by that as a as a problem and um so once I reached the end of my degree I decided to sort of change um and actually did a master's degree to kind of switch um, the field I wanted to go in. I enjoyed science, I enjoyed the sort of practice of science um, in academia, but wasn't the focus that I wanted. So I did a meteorology and climatology degree. Um, was that at Manchester me also? That was at Birmingham University. Birmingham, okay. And then from there, I sort of 
branched out into other aspects of weather and climate science and sort of stumbled onto paleoclimatology really and specifically in the ice core um the ice core kind of really caught my imagination I guess and that was uh how I how I've ended up where I am now hmm. yes and so you saw the doctoral training partnership the Cambridge doctoral training partnership and applied to that and got matched with well I guess you you apply to specific projects in that framework don't you if I remember um, right so I'm not actually officially part of the DTP. I'm kind oh, okay. Of Apologies for assuming. No, 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 it's fine. I am kind of associated with the DTP cohort of students, but um, the Waxwain project was always planned with a PhD project in mind. Um, so I apl- applied directly into that project and was oh, nice. also, yeah. Okay, yeah. So the, yeah, the DTP is a totally different beast where you like apply for projects and then there's a huge sorting process and... Yeah. Compared to what I went through, and it's, I'm guessing compared to what you went through, it's it all looks enormously administratively complicated to me. Mm. And they have they have good arguments and good reasons for that those mechanisms and that framework. Um, but in it, it's in it, it uh, yeah it, it, anyway it, there's more moving pieces, more and more moving parts yeah. to that particular framework. Definitely, uh, I think I like to think I kind of have the best of both worlds, and yeah. that I kind of am part of the DTP. Um, associated with the DTP students and they're kind of sort of um kind of covered by some of the protection that that offers you and the training courses and things like that that are available to you the kind of progression but um but yeah that whole DTP application process looks quite stressful and complicated and um yeah I mean I'm the same as you I'm I'm sure there are very good reasons for it but I'm I'm sort of glad that I didn't have to go through that (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> ring, ring, ringing endorsement for the DTP. <laughs> well, we don't, we don't know, right? We're not. So, but no, uh, exactly. But I guess, yeah. In my in my little bit of internet research, I did. I, I noticed that you had a blog or a couple blog posts that were associated with the DTP, which I think is why I thought yeah. that you were you were in that. Um, yeah. But you you took over the the blog for that for the Cambridge one for a time for, for the yeah. Time. So I'm still helping to manage that blog. So I approach people um, involved in the DTP and see if they have anything cool to write about mm. to do on the side. Yeah. So I guess these are sort of pieces from the students individually and and other scientists, I guess, uh, on the work that they're doing. Little bits of science here and there. Yeah, so um, it's all student-written um, by current students or re- very recently graduated students from the DTP in Cambridge. Um, and yeah, they'll write about maybe an event that they've been part of or fieldwork is obviously a really popular thing. Um, it's a really nice thing to read about. Um, or yeah, anything that students are up to really. I think we had a post recently on managing sort of um, work-life balance kind of more related mm-hmm. thing. That's quite an interesting thing for other students to read about as well is now a completely different thing to contend with than it was two weeks ago <laughs> yes exactly yeah it'll be interesting to to get something about that actually <laughs> everyone's in their home office trying to yeah. figure this thing out yeah um okay yeah so the i guess oh sorry it looks like i got a cough here i don't have a cough button but i have a mute that i can hit and I'm... there we go yeah so <laughs> I'd be interested to know a little bit more about kind of what you've learned along the way. Um, Mm -hmm. And maybe we could start with what was something that you learned about, we did talk a lot about field work, but what's something that you kind of learned about field work that you didn't know before going into it? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, 
I think I, I was, um, I think it's something I knew, but I hadn't really kind of realized was how much you kind of have to think on your feet at the time. Like particularly, I mean, I know that we weren't able to solve the problem of losing the drill, but we, you know, we were faced with this problem and we had only what was there available to us. Um, and I think that's something I hadn't really uh, appreciated before we left was how when you leave for, for the field um, and you get left there with every, all the equipment that you've got, you're in such an isolated place that there's no just, oh, we forgot this tool or, oh, we forgot this you know, piece of equipment that we need. Let's just go back and get it. There's, there's no room for that for error there in terms of you, you need to take everything with you that you think you might need for every possible solution that you can, uh, for every possible situation that you can imagine. So there's a huge amount of planning that goes into that. Um, but yeah, being there and being faced with something like losing the drill and thinking, well, we should try and do what we can to get it out, but we have limited materials, limited resources. So we, you know, you're, you're extremely limited in what you're able to do. Uh, particularly obviously in somewhere like Antarctica or Greenland, you know, polar science where you're really at the kind of limit of, of isolation. Here's, here's maybe a silly question, but maybe not. I'll, I'll just go with it anyway. Um, so the isolation of an Antarctic field camp, um, I'm wondering if you're going to see any parallels with, okay, well, here's how to live in a small-ish environment with a, a small set of people for an extended time. I'm wondering if you're going to be able to take any of those lessons over into um, being on lockdown in your house, as we all are in the UK. Um, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about that? Are there any are there any kind of parallels? Because you have, like you said, it's it's uh, you know you, you have to be prepared for things. We can still go to the shops, so we don't quite have that level of logistical problems. But maybe it's just things like communication and things like you know I I, I haven't been on an Antarctic field site. I've been on a ship, which is a different monster because you know on a ship you can retreat to your cabins if you need to, um, mm. but. I guess in an Antarctic field camp that um, I actually don't know. I guess you must have individual tents or, or you're sharing tents with people or you know, there must yeah. be some kind of living quarters there as well. Well, so we, again, part of the um, perks of sort of using the rapid drill and having this really quick setup and, and leave really in a short space of time meant that we didn't have a huge, um, well, a more uh, established field camp that some drilling sites would have. So we right. had quite a limited um, setup. So we had two pyramid tents, so the big orange bass pyramid tents. Um, one of them slept two people and the other slept three people. Um, and there were just five of us, uh, okay. five in the field. And then in addition to that, we had like a toilet tent, which you obviously need. And then we had um, a sort of leisure tent. So it's called a little clam tent, which is a small, um, I don't know, maybe two meter by four meter tent. Um, which we, which is where we would spend communal time and we would eat there and have our evenings there together. Um, and that kind of, yes, that's where we would eat all of our meals and spend time together. But um, you could retreat to the pyramid tents. Um, so there was a little bit of privacy there. And um, actually we were relatively lucky with the weather we experienced out there. So there was a few days where if I wanted a bit of time um, and on a day when we weren't drilling, um, I was able to just kind of go for a little bit of a walk away from camp and kind of get time to myself that way, um, which was, was really valuable and also kind of an, an, a nice experience in itself of being sort of on your own in a, on the sort of Aishi Antarctica, which is kind of a special experience. Yeah, it's amazing. 
but yeah, there's some, I'd say there's definitely some parallels. I mean, um, I'm quite fortunate in that I um, get to obviously choose who I live with now. So <laughs> there's no, uh, there's not the kind of more potluck situation of who you get put um, into the field with in Antarctica. Um, but yeah, the, but the other simil- uh, there are some similarities, obviously, being kind of cooped up in a relatively small space and just the knowledge that you can't go outside and that there's a risk to other people if you do, if you do leave the, the house. Um, so yeah, th- I think communication is a big one. So in the flat where I share with my partner, obviously, we kind of have to respect each other's privacy and give each other a bit of time out if we need it and that kind of thing. That was something that uh, was definitely... Uh, the case in the field. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there was a, there was an astronaut who, she had this nice tweet thread a couple of days ago. I need to find it. Yeah, I think and I saw this too. Yeah, the one that was about. Um, I forgot, I can't, I've forgotten the the name, but um, I have to go find it. It was about. Well, here's what we know about living in close quarters for a long time with people. That it's uh oh yeah you're gonna you're gonna see if you can find it maybe you can I think I saw it actually on Instagram but yeah I think it was basically the same thing of oh, like right. different skills that you kind of hone um in being in yeah like at the space station or somewhere really isolated like that yeah yeah because it's they they talked about it was more I mean communication is sort of the root of it that's sort of the oh here we go Anne McLean <laughs> so Anne McLean it's this tweet from 22nd of March, if anybody's able to go back that far, um, yeah. some, some pro tips. Should we talk about that? Maybe that's, maybe that's fun to talk about. Yeah. Somebody who's been in, in the field. So let's see. Um, five general skills and defined associated behavior for each, each skill for living in, the, in close quarters for a long time with a uh, skill one communication. We, we said that. To talk so you're clearly understood, to listen and question to understand, actively listen, pick up on nonverbal cues, identify, discuss, then work to resolve conflict. Um, all that sounds really good. Uh, that's obviously applicable to, that's good even if you're not on lockdown. <laughs> yeah, I think particularly the active listening, I think that's a really interesting one, and the picking up on nonverbal cues. From being in, in the field in Antarctica, that was definitely something you needed to appreciate when maybe um, someone wanted a little bit of time out or maybe they're cold and you need to pick up on those signals and, and sometimes offer up help when they maybe don't want to ask for it themselves. Yeah, that's true. That's And that can be hard to know. You need to know them reasonably well to know, um, you know when, when to offer help because, uh, like you said, some people, they don't really want to ask for it. and um, no, that's that's true. That's a, that's a skill, and you, and you need to know them a little bit. You need to to know them reasonably well to know when it's kind of good to to jump in. It's it's never bad to offer, though, is it? You can offer your help and offer picking up on those nonverbal cues. So here's yeah. another one. Uh, the second skill, oh, skill two, leadership slash followership, followership. <laughs> How well a team adapts to new situations. The leader enhances the group's ability to execute its purpose through positive influence. <laughs> the follower actively contributes to the leader's direction. Well, okay, yeah, that's that's good. I guess if there is a hierarchy, which on the ISS there there would be, um, I suppose you know in, in a house there may or may not be, depending on the particular <laughs> you know arrangement. <laughs> yeah. um, and I, on a field camp, I mean, 
I guess my experience is like it, it sure. There's a principal scientist who's in charge of things. Mm-hmm. And I guess on the research ship, there's a captain and who, who's in charge of, but you know, as long as everybody's getting along generally well, then, then, uh, you know, you don't necessarily have to to worry too much about what that hierarchy is. You you need somebody who's responsible for making the big decisions, um, who, who's not the big decisions, even the small decisions uh, for like the general direction of the group. I'm not sure where I'm going with this, by the way. I'm just, you know. <laughs> oh, that's a really good point. I think as well, I found in the field was that it depended on what was going on as to who was sort of more the leader. Right. So when it came to sort of the drilling or any of the really technical things, we would all look to Rob because he had by far the most experience of being in a drilling on a drilling campaign. Um, whereas when it came to maybe my scientific needs from the project, you know, I was the one that was going to be um, analyzing this ice and doing a lot of that. So when it came to sampling the ice, for example, um, I kind of, I guess, took a bit more of the lead and decided how I wanted things to be done. But then there's the whole other aspect of kind of living in Antarctica and being in this remote um, and potentially dangerous situation, dangerous place, being very isolated. So we had two field guides and then they kind of became more, um, more leaders in, in that, in that regard. So they would be the ones to decide if we needed to, um, take, um, take down the tents when we were leaving, you know, they would direct some of that sort of stuff. And, uh, actually when we were leaving, we left quite, um, abruptly because there was a storm on the way. Mm. Um, we were actually still hoping to get some recovery materials from, rather at the UK research station to help us possibly recover the drill, even though the chances of that were very slim by that point. But because it was this storm on the way, the field guides actually kind of encouraged us to make the decision to leave um, and to actually pack up our equipment to decamp and to just get out of the field. Um, so yeah, it depended on what was going on as to who actually took on those leadership versus followership. Right. I think that was a really interesting one and something that we had to constantly adapt to. The leadership structured was determined by the the expertise and the need the needs of the moment so you know whoever you look to the person who was the most likely to be able to knowledgeably weigh in on the scientific question or the logistical question or the safety question so in that way yeah it, it is a little hierarchical but it's determined in a really practical sense you know it's not just somebody is in charge it's let's all figure out the best way to do this and surely the best way to do this is by actually listening to the people who know what they're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's a good, uh, I like that about science. I think science can, can be like that often. I think we, um, we, we can fall into that kind of natural structure, right? Where we, where we can be very deferential to each other. We can be very like, oh. Um, oh, well, you're more likely to know about this. Why don't I defer to you? You know, it's not typically just based on this, you know, who has the most aggressive personality necessarily. Yeah, I, I, I know that can happen sometimes, but, you know, I'm not trying to, to whitewash that away. But um, I think on the whole, on average, I think maybe we're, we, we're more collaborative than kind of combative. Yeah, I definitely agree. That's definitely been my experience. That we're happy to listen to each other or listen to who maybe has a little bit more knowledge of of a particular area i think that's something that i i value greatly actually in a, in, in my field your skill three in mclean uh, self-care how healthy you are on psychological and physical levels including hygiene managing time and personal stuff getting sleep and maintaining mood the ability and willingness to be proactive to stay healthy 
Yeah. So you mentioned getting a little time to yourself, but, and like you said, you were on the site for a few days, I guess. So it wasn't like months and months or weeks and weeks, but still, you know, that, that's less long enough to need to look after yourself a little bit. Yeah. So what sort of things did you have to do? I mean, I guess it's hard to probably can't take proper showers and things, I suppose. Um, <laughs> in Antarctica. No, a shower is kind of out of the question. So mm-hmm. uh, I did have one, I'd, I'd call it a wash with a, with a bucket of warm water and a, and a cloth. And that's about as, as clean as I got in that two weeks of, of being in the field. Apart from that, it was mainly just baby wipe showers. So I was like, <laughs> but yeah, I think, um, I think the thing about being proactive about your own, um, physical health and sort of hygiene and stuff like that, but also um, mental health. I think that's so important in the field and it's something that's being talked about a lot more at the moment, obviously, which is great. Um, but I found that particularly I, I go a little bit insane if I don't get time to myself. So I think those days where I was able to go and take a walk and get away from camp and just have time with my own thoughts was, was just incredibly valuable for me. Um, but also appreciating when someone else needs that and appreciating that not everybody is the same. So some people have, everyone has a different way of switching off or unwinding and you have to kind of be respectful of everyone's ways of dealing with the kind of mental pressures of being out there. Yeah, definitely. So that's, you know, you took your, your own responsibility for looking after your mental health and your physical health and kind of listening to your, listening to yourself, listening to the signals you're getting from your, yourself, it's, yeah. it's a kind of nonverbal communication. It's just internal, yeah. you know, you're, you're internally checking in on yourself, just like you're checking in on the nonverbal communication from the people around you. Yeah, that's true. Well. Let's see. Uh, group living, seal five group living, uh, how people cooperate and become a team to achieve a goal, identify and manage different options, culture, perceptions, skills, and personalities individuals and group individuals and groups demonstrate resiliency in the face of difficulty okay yeah cooperate rather than compete she goes on to say actively cultivate group culture yeah and i I think i think like we were we kind of talked about that already a little bit like in science we are sort of naturally poised to to be in that mode because of the nature of what we're doing yeah that's true good yeah so it's helpful to have tips from an astronaut on how to live <laughs> in a confined space. But uh, yeah, I guess, you know, our current lockdown, of course, this is only a loose analogy. You know, at the moment, we, yeah. we still have showers. We can still go to the shops. So um, I, I hope that everybody's doing okay. I know, this is, I know this has been rough on my extrovert friends and my friends who really love getting out into nature and getting out into the, the sunshine. Uh, I mean, at least the weather's been okay here, you know, so people have been able to at least through a window or maybe in their garden, get some sunshine. So yeah, it's, that's uh, true. I'm personally a little bit jealous of anyone with a balcony or a garden. Cause I don't have anything. I live in a little flat that doesn't have anything. So oh, no, yeah, <laughs> I would love. <laughs> so you just have the sunlight. Ho- hopefully you have some sunlight coming in from the windows. I'm, yes. I'm guessing, yeah. <laughs> so at least it's not, not zero. Um, yeah, the, I, I hope we can squash this before the next winter because I don't want to be stuck inside in the winter. Yeah, <laughs> like, me too. I really, really hope so. In the dark. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I liked that diversion that we you know, uh, uh, that we went down and talked about those analogies and kind of tying yeah. it to the ISS. That was, that was good. I, I wanted to ask you some more what have you learned questions. Like, 
So what have you learned about, about writing in the process? Have you had to do a lot of writing yet or are you not quite in that phase of, of writing? I'm not quite, I'm starting to think about it now. Um, so actually one thing that this sort of um, working from home, you know, compulsory working from home thing has um, enabled me to do is to get out of the lab and actually forget about some of the practical work for a while that I don't have any choice about doing. Um, and it's forced me to look at some of the other things that I want to work on. So part of that involves possibly writing up my first paper, um, which is kind of a nerve wracking experience and one where uh, I've never done it before. So I don't really know where to start, which is um, kind of exciting in some ways, but mostly nerve wracking. <laughs> so yeah, um, I guess watch this space is the one for terms of writing, because that's something that I've got yet to come really. Yeah, definitely ask um, ask senior people for their experiences. And it's something that I like to ask a lot of my guests on this podcast. So, And I get very, very different answers, which I think is kind of heartening. You know, it means that no matter your writing style or your affinity for writing, um, that you, you can do it. You can figure it out and do it, right? You know, that's that's the that's the point is... I've talked to people who absolutely love writing and it's just their favorite part of the whole process. And they just love seeing the whole thing come together. And then I've talked to people who, you know, writing is like pulling teeth for them and just is like torture and they really, really don't, don't want to do it. Um, and you know, the people that I've talked to, they're all successful scientists. They're all like you know, the, the people I have in my mind, I'm thinking about. So, you know, you, you can, you can be a successful scientist and love writing you can be a successful scientist and hate writing or anything in between. It's fine. You know, there's, there's going to be a pathway to, to figure it out. And yeah. I think the thing I'm nervous about is I like the process of writing, um, particularly the kind of early stages where it's just get all your ideas down on paper and the later stages where it all kind of finally clicks into place. And you kind of have that nice bit where you're just focusing on the finer details. Um, that whole middle section is less enjoyable, but, um, mm. but uh, one thing I really don't like is having my writing read by other people. So although I like the writing process, it's the, the idea of someone reading my writing, which is, uh, is off-putting. <laughs> like peer review and then, your, well, your co-authors and then peer review. And then when you put it out into the world, then yeah. everybody's looking at it. Yeah. I, is it, I, I kind of know what you mean. Like it's a, uh, I don't, I don't want to, I'm, I'm really, I'm resisting trying to give you like advice on the, cause that's like, <laughs> this isn't, this isn't like a mentoring session. That's not what we're doing. Yeah. But um, <laughs> I, I just want to say there's a lot of different writing styles out there yeah. and that pe people do figure it out and they've, and, and yeah. So Eric's one of, Eric Wolf is one of your supervisors, right? Yeah. Basically. Yeah. yeah just bother, just get, yeah. Bother him for advice and suggestions. <laughs> He's obviously been doing it a long time. And uh, he, he's got, he's going to have some, we may have even talked about it on this podcast. I forget. It's been a while since I listened to that one. So, and, uh, but yeah, he may have, maybe you could just listen to the last bit of his podcast yeah. where he talk about it and then follow up. <laughs> That's not actual advice. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's, it's good. You'll find a pathway into it. How about, I more casual writing as well so writing for like I mentioned before the blog and stuff like that so um I'm kind of comfortable with writing but yeah we'll see how, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> yeah how about um we talked about science but what's something what, sorry we talked about field work but what's something about science that you've learned that you didn't know before oh do you mean like something technical or or something more broadly about like the 
you know, academia as a whole. Why don't we do both? Why don't we do technical okay. first and then <laughs> academia? Either one. Oh, the, te- because- I mean, the technical. If I think back to, so I'm about a year and a half into my PhD now. And if I think back to what I knew about the work that I'm doing now, 18 months ago, um, yeah, I mean, almost almost nothing really It's in terms of what I now kind of have accumulated in that time. Um, I think, let me think, one, I think one thing that really um, struck me in my first few months um, was how I was sort of faced with this problem of um, uh, how I, how I, well, it's this, the technical question is how I pick apart um, how we can look at, uh, at what timescale can we look at water isotope records? So that's, this, that's the technical question that I'm t- trying to answer in a couple of ice core records out in East Antarctica. And I kind of expected um, naively to be able to just kind of look this up and look up a method for how this works and how I can do this. And <laughs> surely there's some paper that's where someone's done this before, something similar. But actually then the more you dig into it, the more you kind of realize, oh no, wait, like that's, that's the whole point of why, why I'm working on this is that we don't know how to do it and there is no <laughs> one way of doing it. Yeah. Um, the technical side, realizing that um, you need to solve a lot of those problems for yourself. <laughs> That's right. You found the frontier of human knowledge. You're like, oh, there it is. There's the yeah. edge. <laughs> and it sounds like it was maybe closer than you expected it to be. You're like, yeah. oh, <laughs> I found the limits of our current <laughs> practice. And now... I have to figure this out. Yeah, that's that's research, right? That's research is getting to that edge and figuring out what little extra contribution you can make to, you know, figuring these things out. Yeah, I guess that applies to my kind of realization about broader academia as well is really this, um, that you're just kind of adding little bits of knowledge here and there to to the kind of pool of what is is out there. Hmm. Um, And yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah i've said it on here before but my my phd advisor likes to call that putting your pebble on the pile so yeah just, that's a nice analogy add your little stone to the pile yeah, yeah and I, I can't remember who i was talking to about that but someone mentioned that you know a friend of theirs became an engineer or like switched from science to engineering because they they didn't like in science that we don't always know the answer like and that's kind of the point <laughs> is that it's not something you can just look up and they found mm-hmm. they were maybe not super comfortable with that and uh, switched into engineering. And I'm, I'm not saying you always know the engineering answer a hundred percent of the time, but they, the, it, it is relatively more of an applied field where you're saying, well, how do we do this specific task that we, we do know how to do, but how do we do it specifically in this you know context yeah. and this activity? So it's, it's applied in that way. Obviously it still takes loads of creativity and, and you know, creative thinking. So I'm not trying to put down engineering. But, yeah, yeah. I think that word creative is really important, actually. I had never quite appreciated how science can be creative. I kind of, um, when I started my PhD, they were two separate things. Being creative was something that, you know, you can do if you're good at writing or art or something like that. And I, I never really associated that with science in my head. But actually, it definitely is very much a creative field. Absolutely. You're generating something new. You're generating, yeah. you're creating, you're making yes. new knowledge. Exactly. And you have to do it in a way that's very constrained by you know, our current understanding of the world and mathematics and data and our understanding of things like energy and heat. And so, yeah. yeah, but it, it's a highly constrained form of creativity. And when I say highly constrained, I just mean you've been, you've been, the universe has given you some guide rails to work with, but within that structure, you, you, you are free to try out different things. Yeah. Um, 
especially in paleo climate where the air bars are big and you have, you're not that constrained <laughs> like you were talking about earlier that you, you kind of like that freedom. It's a little bit of freedom, mm. a little bit, it's, it's a little bit less constrained than, yeah. than some fields. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's good. So I think we touched on a lot of good stuff there. Is that uh, anything else you want to talk about? Any other, other bits you want to get in there? I don't think so. Nothing, nothing jumps out. Yeah. What, what did you think? Was that a, did we do it? I think we did it. I think it was a nice podcast. I think. Yeah, we... I think so. I hope so. No, it's nice. I feel like um, it's a bit rambly at times, but <laughs> it's just the way it goes. That's okay for this show. That's totally <laughs> fine for this show. That's, that's what, I mean, if I've got, you know, I think people know to expect that. That's the, yeah. that's, and uh, that's, that's the kind of podcast that I find myself listening to for some reason. I just enjoy those where, it is more like a real conversation. Yeah, I think it's nice to hear when you think, yeah, when you actually think that it's a more natural conversation, it's not too scripted and anything like that. I think I managed to say everything that I wanted to say about the field work, which I think is probably the more exciting stuff that I have to talk about. So I'm glad I managed to remember everything that I wanted to say about that. <laughs> cool, cool, good, yeah. Well, I thought it was all exciting because, you know, it. your experience is... And, and everyone's experience in science is about, well, how do we do this? Like, how do we navigate this territory of generating new knowledge, conducting the field work, conducting, doing the writing, doing the thinking, taking care of yourself in all of that. Uh, that's, that's all good stuff. That's all great, exciting stuff to talk about as far as I'm concerned. So the, uh, yeah. Okay. Well, thanks. Oh, you know, I'm going to embarrass myself again. I did this with the last remote guest too. Um, and because you know we we arrange these things all online, and I'm like, oh, how how do you pronounce your last name? Because I, uh-huh. I think I would have let me guess and let me see if I'm right. Because there's a couple options. So because um, we haven't met in person, I should say that, and I, I haven't yeah. been I haven't been introduced to you. So this is why I don't know this. So I Bella, do you go by Bella or is Isabel? I go by Bella. Yeah. Bella. So okay, and so it can either be uh, Roel or Raoul. I'm gonna guess Roel. It's a Raoul. It's a Raoul. Ah, it's Raoul. Okay. <laughs> Raoul. Raoul. I'm trying to, how do I write that down? Raoul. I need, I need like that Powell, phonetic. I guess. Or, or, Powell? Yeah. yeah. Oh, there you go. Pa- Powell. Powell. Raoul. Okay. Yeah, yeah. thanks. That's, that, uh, that helps. Awesome. Uh, Bella, thanks, thanks very much for taking the time out. No problem. And I really enjoyed it. Good. I'm glad. I don't know exactly when this is going to come out. Um, I'm thinking about modifying my release schedule because of the lockdown kind of situation. I think I can actually put these out more frequently now than I could before. Okay. Yeah, cool. Because <laughs> before I was kind of, I'd really tried to get them in person, uh, which that's now not an option. But that yeah. actually means it's kind of easier to schedule. It's easier to get people on here. And yeah. so I might actually be able to put these out a little more frequently. So I will. I will put that out on Twitter when it is ready. Um, I, would, I would think sometime in the next month would, okay, it would yeah, be up. Cool. Okay, thanks again, Bella. Thanks for that. Thanks. Bye. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. There you have it. My conversation with Bella Rowell, at Bella Rowell on Twitter. I'm at Dan Jones Ocean, and you can also follow at Climate SciPod. I've got some personal news, some good personal news, and I didn't want to take up a lot of space at the front of the episode you know, talking too much about, about myself. I wanted to keep it about Bella's episode and the project. So I've received this fellowship 
this uh, UKRI Future Leaders Fellowship, and I'm now free to talk about it. I've known about a month, but I was under embargo. I wasn't supposed to share any information before then. And really, all I wanted to do was express gratitude here for all of the people who helped me put that project together and who helped me get into a position where I had the time and the flexibility and the freedom to think about a project like that and to put a project like that together. I'm feeling a lot of gratitude. I want to just be upfront and say that it was, you know, not a one-person effort. Okay, I put it together. I championed the idea. But really, I couldn't have done it without the support of lots of people. I hope you know who you are. I've tried to express my gratitude to all those folks in my life. But uh, yeah, I hope you're doing okay again, and I'll uh, talk to you later. Take care. Bye-bye.